Okay, so we are uh, here. This is actually our first podcast for Contemporary Spirituality, and we're here with uh, John Deere. I am at my law office in Kansas City. John is at his home in uh, California, and here we are. A little bit about John. I'm just going to read this from the back of his book, The Nonviolent Life. John is an internationally known voice for peace and nonviolence. He is a popular speaker, peacemaker, organizer, lecturer, retreat leader, and the author-editor of 30 books. He has organized and participated in nonviolent campaigns for over three decades, been arrested some 75 times in acts of civil disobedience against war and injustice, and spent nearly a year of his life in jail for peace. Recently, John was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize by Archbishop Desmond Tutu. So there we go, and John, a pleasure to visit with you, and uh, we feel very fortunate to be able to just kind of learn from, uh, learn more about you and learn from you today. So thanks for uh, agreeing to do this. Yeah, my pleasure. Well, thanks for having me on, and thanks for your your work um, for promoting contemplation and mysticism. Well, thank you. So um, some may know, some may not know, but you were recently in Kansas City, and you've been here twice, I think two years back-to-back. Back. The last, I've been at both. The uh, the most recent was March 7th, a Saturday workshop at Avila University, and I think there were two peace and justice groups that kind of sponsored and, and partnered together for that event, and that was a great one. And then, um, you know, our group, Contemporary Spirituality, we really started with more nationally known wisdom teachers like Father William Menninger, like James Finley, like Ilya Delio and Ron Rollheiser. So um, to kind of have another uh, uh, person of your reputation come to Kansas City is, uh, you know, to spend time with us is just very encouraging, and, and we appreciate you doing that. So to, to get started, could you would you mind just telling us a little bit more about you, your background, family, schooling, how you decided that you know, priesthood was the route for you? Well, sure. I um, just uh, turned 60, and um, I grew up in North Carolina and then D.C., in a big newspaper publishing family that was part of the National Press Club. And um, it's always on my mind. I'm trying to write about this now, too. What happened to me was, so I was very politically aware as a kid and also very spiritually aware as a kid. Don't ask me why. But, uh, you know, my parents are newspaper people. And uh, so when Martin Luther King was killed, I was shaken to the core as a nine-year-old boy. And my dad took me downtown to see the riots and the curfew and then Resurrection City. I remember all that. And then when Bobby Kennedy was killed, I just wept for a day. And I thought, well, uh, life's not worth living. Because these are the two greatest people our country has produced. And I went into a long existential crisis that lasted through college at Duke in the 70s. This is more than you want to know, but like, why did I end up this way? And I studied African-American history at Duke, um, studied the civil rights movement. And I thought, I, you know, death is a big problem for me. <laughs> And, you know, and then I decided, well, I don't believe in God because this isn't working. And I tried that and that didn't work either. And I got even more depressed. So I just decided one day I was going to give my entire life to Jesus and to God. And I thought, well, I guess I'll have to be a priest. Well, I guess I'll have to be a Jesuit. I had gone to a Jesuit high school. It was pretty as simple as that. But it was a long existential search that one day I decided to do that. So my family was quite against it and uh, asked me to wait, which I decided to do, actually then worked for the Robert Kennedy Family Foundation as a 20-year-old kid, and um, decided, well, before I enter the Jesuits, I'm going to go hitchhiking through Israel for three months. And I did that by myself with nothing. And the week I left, Israel invaded Lebanon. It was the Summer War of 1982. It was all orchestrated out of the Pentagon. We killed 60,000 people in three months. All the Holy Land tours were canceled. I didn't know what I was getting into. I was very naive and walked through the war zone. I spent a lot of time camping out illegally at the Sea of Galilee as a 21-year-old kid. 
And it was there, visiting the chapel of Beatitudes, I really came to grips with the Beatitudes and Sermon on the Mount for the first time. And I remember really, really thinking about him. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice. Love your enemies. This is what you want us to do. Mm. You know, I thought it was to be really pious. And that's not it at all. And just then I saw all these jets swoop down over the Sea of Galilee and drop bombs 15 miles away and kill people. Mm. As I, I was the only person there. And I saw warfare at the place where Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. And I said, right, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. And I don't claim to be doing it. I claim to be trying to doing it. I often feel like it mostly feels like, you know, one step forward, two steps back. But um, how do you work for peace and justice? And how do you how do you follow the nonviolent Jesus who was crucified for executed for turning over the tables and nonviolent civil disobedience? Uh uh, he wasn't a very pious guy. He was trying to change the whole world and wake everybody up. And I entered the Jesuits a completely different person than I had planned. And the next thing you know, I was sitting at the feet of Daniel and Philip Berrigan and became a peace activist. It was not my plan at all. I'm still on that journey 40 years later. It's amazing to me. Mm. So that's what happened to me, Mike, and it's been downhill ever since. <laughs> Oh, that's, that's great. <laughs> I understand. Now, tell me about the pious, the, the difference between pious and not pious, because you said that a couple times, and you said he was not very pious. I think you you, you said Jesus, but, you know, we, we've, we have this pious Jesus, and we've got a million pictures of him. Just, how do you see it? Uh, was that when you were 22 and you, you had a new uh, profound sense of the Sermon on the Mount? Or kind of unpack that for us, if you will. Well, it's exactly who is Jesus and what does it mean to follow him? And so um, I've studied all these great peacemakers and I've met all of them. And uh, Mahatma Gandhi, as I said in Kansas City, he read the Sermon on the Mount every day in the morning and the evening, excerpts from Matthew 5, for 45 years. And he's not even a Christian. He said it's the greatest spiritual teachings in human history, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And it's a, just a, a handbook of nonviolence. So it's practicing total nonviolence, but there's nothing passive about it. It's active, creative, revolutionary, unconditional love that works to stop the killing and injustice. So Gandhi based all of his organized peacemaking in the Sermon on the Mount. He spent two hours a day silent meditation. I actually went to India with Arun Gandhi to a place where he prayed. I really studied him and came too. So what I was thinking as a kid there in Galilee was, oh, you know, I didn't, I decided not to be a monk. I was going to be a Jesuit and a priest and isn't that nice. But that's not what Jesus wants. And this is the great challenge in the Gospels. The religious authorities there who end up turning him in and killing him. I was thinking this this morning, reading the gospel. They are very devout people, much more devout than me. And they're fasting twice a week and memorizing the scriptures and following the letter of the law and killing people and oppressing people and getting paid off by the Roman Empire. And this is the danger of organized religion and fundamentalism in every religion, including Christianity, including Roman Catholicism, including Buddhism, uh, where, you know, the religious practice becomes it, as opposed to universal love, universal compassion, total nonviolence, which means you have to be working to get rid of nuclear weapons in Kansas City, and poverty and racism, and be publicly against war, or your quiet Pietism is part of the problem. So the Quakers in the 1700s really grapple with this, and they founded the abolitionist movement. You know, that, so it's yes, you have to be contempt. I don't think you can do the gospel without going into mysticism and practicing contemplation like Merton and the Berrigans and Dorothy Day teach. But it's not what you think, it's a dangerous mysticism. 
you know, like Oscar Romero. He was actually, um, to use this clumsy word, pious, who's a very devout person in a traditional Salvadoran, Central American sense. But they had to kill him. He was ending the war and bringing down the junta and getting the whole world to follow what was going on in El Salvador. This is what I'm talking about. Really, your, your, um, our prayer and contemplation should be a threat to the Pentagon and the culture of war. And if it isn't, something's wrong. Yeah, that's that's where where Merton was breaking new ground, and as a monk, it's unheard of. Anyway, that's why I'm trying to figure out contemplative nonviolence and active nonviolence, and the mysticism underneath our public work to abolish war and racism and poverty and nuclear weapons. And this is critical that we have to work on this and and figuring out how do we really follow the nonviolent Jesus. So I don't mean to give a speech, but these are questions I think about morning, noon, and night for 40 years. Oh yeah, no, these are great questions. Let me um, let me stay in that vein and and, and shift gears just slightly. So um, many of the folks that listen to that, at, at least uh, you know through contemplative spirituality, have just gone through um, this Lenten series on walking with modern day saints, and it included a movie on the life of Dorothy Day and, and a, a movie on Thomas Merton and Martin Luther King. And uh, by the time they hear this, we will also uh, discussed and watch Dietrich Bonhoeffer. But some of those folks, um, you were on the Merton movie we all watched. I know Dorothy Day uh, had an impact on you, and, and you already talked about Martin Luther King. Uh, tell us more maybe about those three um, how 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 has your life been impacted by their lives, say for starters? Merton, Dorothy Day, and Bonhoeffer? Martin Luther King. Bonhoeffer would be Martin great. Luther. Okay, well, yeah. uh, so what happened was when I entered the Jesuits, I just thought, well, how do you live the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount? I don't know. So I just started reading. I love biographies, and I like saints, and I just started to read <laughs> I laughing because I'm such a fanatic. Uh, every single book by and about Gandhi, Martin Luther King, Dorothy Day, Thomas Merton, the Berrigans, and Henry Nouwen. Those would be my six great teachers, but you could name all the other other great teachers and I read them too. But those people, I still read every single day. I'm reading, I'm reading them now. And I'm, I've read literally, I think, everything they ever wrote. Not only that, I've gone to their places and met their friends and families. And so I started going to the Abbey of Gethsemane. Well, remember, I'm, my great teacher and friend and mentor is Father Daniel Berrigan, who was really Merton's best friend, in my opinion. And I'm now wow. Dan's little executor. So I started going to Gethsemane twice a year in the mid-1980s until I guess I was there a year or two ago. I can't even remember. So I know all the monks, and then I became friends with all of Merton's friends and um, asked them the questions you're asking me. How is it that Merton, you know, who's praying seven hours a day, really? I've been to Gethsemane. It's actually my monastery. I love it. And uh, to then start speaking out against nuclear weapons and war and racism, it's hard to remember 1960. No priest had ever done that before, mm. actually. And, um, I mean, to be really strongly against racism and on the side of Dr. King, he lost all his fan base. People hated him. Now, and so he's a genius, and he's a true follower of Jesus because he's going real deep into the implications of nonviolence. He's studying Buddhism in the 50s, and by 1960, he had already spent 10 years actively studying Gandhi. Well, this is this is what we all need. We all need to start making the, the connections, connecting the dots like Merton did, and going, oh, this is a whole visionary new way of life. Living in the kingdom of God is a world of total nonviolence. Gandhi was right, and Dr. King was right. So I still read Merton, been reading him now, um, you know, especially in light of this lockdown and solitude and practicing nonviolence and solitude and being nonviolent to yourself, making peace with yourself, living at peace with God and, you know, being peaceful in community. He really helps me in all of that. Um, 
Dorothy Day on the flip side is the front line force. And none, I haven't yet seen the PBS movie, but I've studied her a great deal and been to her archives and all these people's archives. And the thing that gets me is that in the, in, in the thirties, she is against every single war. Yeah, that is so scandalous. You, you, she had one headline around 1941 during Pearl Harbor, maybe early 42. The Catholic worker was, "Our stand is the Sermon on the Mount." Yes, and I think that's the only Christian stand. You cannot support war. There is no just war. Jesus doesn't say love your enemies, but if they're really bad, go ahead and kill them. They're really bad. You got to kill Hitler. No, you don't kill Hitler. You win him over. And you disarm him, and you don't kill Trump, you disarm him, and you practice universal nonviolent love. But it's not passive, it's active and risky, and it means engaging the enemies of your country. At that time, Germany and Japan, today, Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, that's why I've gone to Iraq and Afghanistan, try to love enemies. And Darcy, uh, my my godfather, my cousin, was a Catholic worker with her, a close friend of her. So I, since I was born, I was literally subscribed to the Catholic workers. So I was doomed as a kid. And I yeah. could have met her, but I didn't. Uh, but um, she's had a huge influence on her life. She's one of the great saints. If the world survives, this will be the era of Dorothy Day, like the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, or St. Francis. And um, and Dr. King, again, is another kind of active nonviolence. Such a prophetic voice, so smart. But he organized nonviolence in a methodology. To, so you're working in Kansas City. He he organizes this, you know, a boycott of, of segregation and, and busing in Montgomery, Alabama in 55 and 56. And it works. And it leads to the end of segregation. And then he's the freedom rides and then the lunch counter sit-ins and then the Birmingham campaign, uh, the most segregated city. And he writes that incredible letter and he's in and out of jail, totally nonviolent, getting 15 death threats a day. I don't know how he did it. He's a total saint. And then keep going and resisting economic injustice, which is connected to racism and then speaking out against the Vietnam war. And, well, you know, the government is going to have to kill him then because there's never been a force like him who's totally nonviolent. And so we are so blessed in these terrible dark times to have these bright lights. Martin Luther King, Gandhi, Dorothy Day, Thomas Merton, so many others. Now, just a little note. We can talk about this if you want, but I don't care. I just come out and say things. So in Kansas City, somebody raised their hand and said, well, what about Bonhoeffer? And I said. God bless Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He's a great saint, and he was totally wrong. He was really involved in the killing of trying to kill Hitler. He, and he, he, wrote. he absolutely was, yeah. Yeah, and he wrote in his letters, I am not following Jesus and doing this. I am participating in mortal sin. Do not do what I'm doing. So he knew what he was doing, and it doesn't work, by the way. So, and I, so we got it, especially the... Protestants around the world are enamored with Bonhoeffer, and they should be enamored with Martin Luther King, and they're not. And and yet Bonhoeffer wrote up till, well, he may have written the greatest book on the Sermon on the Mount ever, uh, the Call to Discipleship. But you know, he 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 rejected it in the end. And I in my uh, my book on Gandhi, I found letters from Gandhi to Bonhoeffer. Bon, Gandhi was trying to get Bonhoeffer to come and live with him and teach him how to bring nonviolence from India to the state, which is way before Dr. King. And I always regretted that that happened. Now, just the last point I'll make is the flip side of that is Franz Jägerstatter. And if people listening to this do not know his name, please go and Google him and look it up, and you're going to have to figure out how to spell it. <laughs> I was going to ask Franz, you that, but all right. <laughs> Franz was beatified. 10 years ago in Austria, and I was there for it because in the uh, 90s, I went and spent a week with his family, his wife. She just died. Francisca Jägerstatter died at age 100 a couple years ago. And there's a big new Hollywood movie just came out a couple of months about them. Thank God, finally put out by Terrence Malick 
I went to a premiere in L.A. because I've been so involved with them called A Hidden Life. I, I want you all to watch that. Mm. You can, it's going to come out on DVD. So Franz is one of five people in Austria. Now think on this. He's a devout Roman Catholic. He and his wife go to Mass every morning at 6 a.m. in their village. I went to the church. He's now buried there. And he has this big conversion through Francisca. And the Anschluss happens overnight. Every male in Austria has to become a Nazi soldier. And they're all sent off to the front to kill for Hitler. And they're all killed. And Franz was one of five who said no. Uh, I'm not going. You know, hey, I'd love to kill for you, Hitler, but I got this guy, Jesus. And he said, love your enemy, so I can't kill for you. This is different than Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And Franz, Hitler was so freaked out. They dragged, they arrested him and dragged him to Berlin from his farming village where he was brutally interrogated. Hey, I'm just, I'm a follower of Jesus. And, you know, the Nazis are all Christian. They're all Catholics and Christians. Yeah. Everybody, the whole, all the bishops, the Catholic bishops of Germany, Nazi Germany, all wore swastikas. I have a picture of them with Hitler, toasting with champagne, Hitler. This is the predicament we're all in, and we're all still dealing with the war-making church that has betrayed to deny Jesus. Franz didn't, and um, he was unknown until the 60s, and uh, he was beheaded in 19. 19- uh, 43 on August 9th, and he's, he's he's the to me the greatest modern saint and mystic because he had no community, no support. He did not know nothing about Gandhi. There's no Martin Luther King, and he just had the gospel, and uh, so he did this. Now Francisca, whom I know very well, lived with her in the 90s, and she, you know his wife, and you'll see her in the movie. She told me that, you know, I didn't want him to do this. They had three little girls. But if I didn't support him, literally no one would. And mm-hmm. But to me, she was always the great saint. And Franz would have said that, too. So I want people to say that. His name is Franz Jägerstatter, J-A-G-E-R-S-T-A-T-T-E-R. You can Google John Deere Franz, Blessed Franz Jägerstatter, and some of my articles will come up about it. Anyway, those are my teachers. I like it. Let me ask you about the role of the church. Um, in, I'm watching the Bonhoeffer movie now, and it, it, I'm fascinated by the fact that Germany was whatever, one, one half Lutheran, one half Catholic at the time of Hitler, and it, basically everybody was silent. Uh, it, it sounds like the uh, the Nazi regime made a, a deal with, with the Roman Catholic side early, uh, kind of a, a negotiated deal where it will allow you autonomy if, if you won't push resistance at all and something similar happened on the protestant side but what what i i think many of us you know sit around and say how did that happen you know how how were these things going on in germany in the 30s and the 40s and the church you know a, a, a christian nation right the the church essentially stood by and did nothing how does that happen mike, and what do you think about mike, that mike it's totally happening today in the United States. That's what I thought you were going to say, but unpack the churches that part. are totally systematically taken over by the Republican Party and the Pentagon, and it's been a 50-year campaign. Now, so that's where, but but to look carefully, I even began talking about this. It's what happened with the religious authorities in Jerusalem in Jesus's time. So when Jesus walks in and turns over the tables nonviolently of the banking system, the banking system in the temple, which is the only place they thought where God exists on the planet. God's not in you yeah. and me or in creation. You have to go there, and you've got to spend your life savings to go in there and sacrifice you know, an animal, or maybe you poor unholy people, a dove. And the whole religious institution is making a fortune with the Roman Empire. And the point was, we, you don't rock the boat about the empire. Jesus just turned over the tables of the whole culture. So um, you could go through every empire in history and the same thing happened. St. Francis and St. Clair in the Middle Ages, basically their nonviolence began to undermine feudalism. And that's how feudalism ended. Now, in, in those days, 
the Catholic bishops and cardinals led the crusades with the swords to going out to kill millions of heathens. That's mm-hmm. what they did. Uh, and so then, um, you know, you can then you can we were so co-opted. It's really it, we split into movements so that the abolitionists and the suffragists were mainly Christian Quaker women and men. Frederick mm-hmm. Douglass, William Lloyd Garrison, and so forth, those great saints from the 1800s, they were coming as church people, but they couldn't, and they, they, so they led the movement. And then you have Gandhi, and Gandhi has really changed the world and led to Martin Luther King and so forth. But um, in, the, in, in the story of World War One and World War Two is so incredible. It all goes back to World War One and the way we crushed Germany after World War I, and that led to what's happening now, the rise of fascism and racism, and all your problems are due to these, this group of people over here, the Jews. And then, um, you know, just buying off and telling the churches to be quiet, and that to serve Christ is to be a Nazi. Mm. Now, you just fast forward to today, it's the same thing, Mike. To serve Christ, you have to be a good American. And um, my mother was on the phone yesterday. She's in an assisted living, telling me about this 10-page single-space package that came in the mail, calling upon all Catholics to, in the United States to vote for Trump, mm-hmm. signed by Cardinal Dolan, the Catholic Cardinal of New York City. This is our predicament now. But the Catholic bishops of the United States were founded as a group. The U.S. Catholic Conference of Bishops were founded in 1918 to support the troops and the military. 99% of the bishops, the point of them is to support the troops and the and the military. I know that as a priest, I've, I've really researched this. And uh, that's why you have to speak out against war or, you know, you're betraying Christ. So people don't know about the most 90% of the priests in the United States, I would say ministers too, of all the Christian denominations, are not taught anything about the nonviolence of Jesus or anything about war and peace and much less racism and then the environment and poverty. And, you know, you're taught to do a little charity and to be good. And that's why just to go to mass or go to church and support, support the troops. God bless the troops. This is not the gospel, not the gospel. And we have a lot of saints to learn on and learn from, and we have a lot of work to do, but, it's very, very hard to break through the great, great way we're being betrayed and lied. But don't think it's just happening. The far right has actually studied the Nazis. And I, I don't have time to get into it, but, you know, from Nixon to Ronald Reagan uh, to the Bushes and then to, to Trump, there's a lineage here. You have to kill Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy. And then you have to take over the churches. The Catholic Church is so different now than it was when I was a kid. And we have Pope Francis, maybe the most progressive pope in history. But here in the U.S., it's so it's been it's just a different thing. And um, as but that that happened very systematically. The universities have been co-opted. The media has been co-opted. Fox News was created to support the culture of violence. And we're in real bad shape. We're headed into total fascism unless we all wake up and really just say, my allegiance is to Jesus and his nonviolence and his, the nonviolent kingdom of God. And that's that. You know, that's why I go to jail. It really helps clarify your discipleship to Jesus versus where your real allegiance is. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry to give a speech, Mike, but these are oh, the big great. <laughs> it's great. Let's let's go to scripture. Is is the Sermon on the Mount the single most important teaching of Jesus? Well, Gandhi said so. He actually said and I I, I can say that cuz I've read the 100 volumes of the collective works of Gandhi. Mm. And 50 biographies that Dan Bergen said I had overdosed on Gandhi and need to go into a 12-step group. That was our big joke. Because <laughs> I, I, I did this great book, Mohandas Gandhi, Essential Writings for Orbis Books. And so I really studied them. Well, you don't expect the great Hindu to be – I didn't know that. You know, who tell, who, who, and I'm an activist. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it took me – 30 years of studying Gandhi to really, he's really serious about this. And he's reading Matthew 5. 
he read the verse. Now, I'm going to quote it because I memorized it. The fifth antithesis in Matthew 5. He read this every morning and every evening. He was not Gandhi. He became Gandhi because he consciously decided in his quiet meditation, I am going to change my life to live according to the Sermon on the Mount. That's a very serious practice. And the verse was, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, and this is the best translation from the Greek, offer no violent resistance to one who does evil. Well, there's a commandment right there. Who talks about that? Offer no violent resistance. Someone does evil to you. Someone's going to come to you and do evil. You cannot respond with violence. Violence in response to violence always leads to further violence. What do you do? Gandhi spent his life saying, well, then we have to practice active, creative nonviolence. And that's what Jesus did. And he gave actual examples. So if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn and offer the other. And then the next one is, you have heard it said, love your countrymen and hate your enemy. That's nation state language. But I say to you, love your enemies. So Gandhi read that every single day. Uh, and he's our mo greatest modern prophet and peacemaker. I think all the movements, and there's thousands of movements now. That's my my great consolation that things are so bad, but people are waking up like never before. All of that came from Gandhi and Martin Luther King. Mm -hmm. We don't deserve these greatest figures in, in, in history since Jesus, in my opinion. They are saying that Gandhi is the first, Martin Luther King, I'm quoting King now, said, Gandhi was the first person in modern history to unpack the Sermon on the Mount and say it's not just a, a private ethical practice. You know, I'm going to be nice to people. No, you're not only supposed to be love your neighbor, you're supposed to love everyone and you practice. He said, this is meant for nation states can become nonviolent. India could become nonviolent and get the British to leave nonviolently. And Dr. King can bring down segregation nonviolently. So that's why it's not a private ethic, but a public tool and methodology of organizing to end systemic evil nonviolently. And we have all these movements that have been doing it from Dr. King and the boycott to people power, bringing down Marcos to there's been thousands and thousands of nonviolent movements. And that's why I talked about in Kansas city and people going, Oh, John, that's not the spiritual life. And I'm saying, yes, that's the spiritual life friends. Otherwise we end up like good Nazis, very divided, privately practicing the very devout religion compartmentalizing our spiritual life and going along with the culture of war and end up supporting the Nazis. So we support America when it drops a nuclear bomb or all that Trump is doing now. All these wars we are waging around the world right now and selling weapons and the corporate greed and literally destroying the planet by not being involved in, in stopping catastrophic climate change. Actually, the yeah. situation is much worse than Gandhi and Dr. King. So... I don't know. What I say is only read the four Gospels. Don't read the Hebrew Scriptures. Don't read St. Paul. St. Paul never read the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and be careful about the saints that you're reading and what you read. Um, this, a lot of the saints that I study said they only read after once they reached, uh, once they were really into enlightened, being enlightened beings. They only read the gospel every day. That's what I've been doing for 40 years. That's what Daniel Berrigan, Philip Berrigan did. Mm. Um, and I'm quite serious about that. Uh, Gandhi went further and only read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. I need mm. the whole life of Jesus, but you have to be really rooted in the Sermon on the Mount. And, and, and if uh, Gandhi's saying Jesus is the greatest person of nonviolence in history, I want to be a person of nonviolence, so I have to read his teachings on how to do that. Well, that's the Sermon on the Mount. I read the whole story because there's other teachings about basically the three chapters after Matthew saying, look, okay, you're going to do this, and it's not going to work. Some of you are going to get arrested. Some of you are going to get betrayed. Some of you are even going to get killed and hang in there and keep your eyes on me. Mm. Well, I can't say that publicly because so few people – even believe in the nonviolence of Jesus, you know? And that's why I'm tr just trying to get people to go back and read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And you go, well, this isn't as much fun as reading Merton. <laughs> Merton never wrote a book on Jesus. 
and never wrote a book on the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah, remember I was a Jesuit for 32 years, and now I'm a yeah. diocesan out in California. So I'm a practitioner of Ignatian spirituality. For me, I need to sit with Jesus and to be talking about the gospel. And St. Ignatius said, imagine you're sitting with Jesus and check mm-hmm. in with Jesus every day. And it's very, my prayer is very kindergarten level. But I talk, how do I be nonviolent, Jesus, when I, I'm really mad at what that person did to me two weeks ago? Or what my father did to me as a kid. You know, you know, he's just constantly, it's a constant journey of inner disarmament so that I can go forth and be, try to be a more nonviolent person, try to be part of God's disarmament movement. Um, so I invite your listeners to think on that too. I think that's a very important thing. I've been thinking about that lately. Lately, I'm good friends with Richard Rohr and, you know, we used to talk about this 20 or 30 years and he's ago and he's, going to be on the Pache Bene um, August 8th big I national conference. Yes. Yeah, he was going to speak at our conference, but the conference had to be transitioned to online. Had to be put, yeah. Yeah, because of the pandemic. But Richard teaches centering prayer, and he's not teaching Ignatian prayer. He's not saying go and sit with Jesus. So um, I I think most of us need to go and be with Jesus. We need mm-hmm. Jesus and the Gospels in our lives, and so I invite you to ponder yeah. that. Tell, tell folks about your inner life. I think it was fascinating, having just gone through the Dorothy Day movie, that uh, she spent three hours a day in quiet. Now, you know, it was poetry, it was uh, journaling, it was spiritual reading. It, the, the movie was vague as to what the components were of that. But tell us about your inner life. You know, what, what sure. are your daily practices? Well, remember, too, that Dorothy is very unusual, and she came from a very older generation. So, And, you know, Daniel Berrigan, my friend, was one of her best friends, and she was the generation of Dan's mother. Yeah. So what uh, Dorothy uh, and I was lived in New York for 12 years, worked at the Catholic Worker regularly, because I knew Mary House and knew all her friends, and she's in her room, and she's reading the, the breviary. Mm-hmm. And she's praying the full rosary every very day. Very traditional. Yeah. Very, very traditional. She went to daily mass. Yeah. She kept a list of 1,000 handwritten names of people she had died, all the homeless people, and she prayed for them every single day. Mm-hmm. People totally. And, um, I mean, she was a total saint. And her prayer is a prayer of agony. She's not I, – I, I wish she had had a lot of therapy, actually, I think she was had a very hard life, and she was a pretty grouchy person, you know. I've done a lot of research into this church, so I feel sorry for her, whereas Dan was a lot of fun to be with. And she mellow, Dorothy mellowed in the last few years. I don't want to be a grouchy, mean old grouch, uh, but she was so far ahead of her time, and she was rejected by everybody, every single priest. I mean, my mother would tell me stories because she's a New Yorker. Like, she was a communist, Dorothy Day. Now she's going to be canonized. So um, it was very traditional. My Again, I came from Ignatian training. So for me, that means minimum 30 minutes a day of sitting with Jesus, like having a check-in. Now, that would be like going to imagine you're sitting with Gandhi or Dorothy Day, which is a good thing to exercise to do. So I go and sit with Jesus. I did it this morning. I don't, uh, and just tell him my problems and let him try to listen to what he wants to say to me and read a little bit of the gospel. Mm -hmm. And um, then I, you know, try to spend the rest of my, so that's what I've been doing for 40 years. Mm -hmm. And then once or twice a year, I make an eight day silent retreat or more. Twice Mm -hmm. in my life, I've done 30 day retreats. So that's once or twice a year. In January, I did not eight-day silent retreat at a monastery here in Big Sur, where I live. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, mass as a priest and, and all. But this is the nation way is meant for active people, you know, mm-hmm. working with families. And you can check in with Jesus every morning and then get on with your life and check in before you go to bed. I like that. Yeah, I like the, I, I went through a, they took the 30-day Ignatian program and, stretched it out to nine months for kind of working professionals yeah. through that. And yeah. I, 
I did uh, enjoy aspects of it, and then you know, but I enjoy aspects of centering prayer too. So it's we all have to find, I think, our what what works. Um, let me move Absolutely. over. Absolutely, I'm not putting centering prayer down, but I'm saying make sure you you talk to Jesus and ask Him about your life. That's I I mean, like it for me. I, this is what I meant to say. Prayer is a relationship. Yeah, everything is relationship with God and with Jesus. Just like you're the person you're in love with, you have a relationship. Well, we love God and we want to be with God. So you have centering prayer, but also invite God to come and be with, be with you and say, God, what is it you want to say to me? What do you want me to do with, given the terrible injustices in the world? How, where do I need to grow in nonviolence? And let Jesus talk to you and, and lead you. And also let God say, I love you and I want to be with you. Which uh, so to engage in a dialogue with God, I love all that. Yeah, as in yeah, an think, intimate relation, as in any intimate relationship. And Ignatian spirituality does that well. The imagination component and the yeah. dialogue component. Um, yeah, I, I I I don't subscribe to the notion that centering prayer is the beginning and end of all. Just kind of a more of a component. Um, yeah. How yeah. about on the getting arrested. You've been arrested 75 times. You've been in jail. You've been out of jail. You've been in jail for almost up to a year at one time. What is that like? I, I, I suspect that, you know, brings you to the depth of kind of foundational stuff and who you are. But what, what is what can you tell us about that? 99% of the people listening to this have probably never been arrested for civil disobedience. Well, um, so remember, I was practically raised by Daniel and Philip Berrigan, so I went yeah. to the He's like, "Go get arrested at the Pentagon, kid, and report back." It was really exactly <laughs> like that. And uh, so, yeah, I was just arrested a couple months ago with Jane Fonda. We shut down um, the Senate Hart Office Building uh, over climate change, and she started this great movement um, called Fire Drill Fridays, which is all stopped now because of the pandemic. I urge mm-hmm. people to go and look that up. She was calling for weekly arrests every Friday in Washington, D.C. And I believe that. So my my thought is that if you study the movements, well, first of all, how does social change happen? The mm-hmm. abolitionists, the suffragists, the labor movement, the civil rights movement, all the movements, how are we going to protect the environment and end homelessness and end systemic racism? Well, you have to organize movements. Everybody's got to be involved, everybody, and every Christian, if you're following Jesus, because he's a movement organizer, and I've been teaching this on my podcast lately. People can get it at Pache Bene. Well, um, so everybody's got to do something, and when I was 21 and just getting involved in this, I looked at Gandhi, King, Dorothy Day, and the Berrigans, my teachers. I'm going, okay, they all wrote. I I literally (laughs) – started to write a book when I was 21 and now I've written 37. I don't know what happened to me. Um, and then I saw they all gave speeches. So I just said, okay, I'll start going and talk about this. Now I've spoken to a million people, but I didn't know what I was doing. I was making this up. And then I was thinking, well, they're all into nonviolence. So I better really work on my nonviolence. And mm. that's so darn hard for me. And they're all contemplatives, by the way, they're all praying and they're mm. all in community. And they all get arrested. They all get arrested. And they're my heroes. And I met and lived with Daniel Berrigan, and he was arrested probably 250 times. So, <laughs> I, um, you know, I've, I've been in and out of court and jail for 40 years. And you're a lawyer, Mike. I mean, I, yeah. I've had a lot of lawyers. I have... Ramsey Clark, the former attorney general, is one of my 15 lawyers. It's so much fun. You get all these lawyers doing pro bono work for you. I was arrested for shutting down the Supreme Court a couple of years ago on the death penalty. Last year and a half ago, Pachi Benny, we did a civil disobedience action where we marched from the Dr. King statue to the White House as Gandhi and Satyagrahis to get arrested. And um, the police wouldn't arrest us. But what I wanted to say was that if you look at the movements, mm-hmm. there's always a front line percentage. Not everybody within the movement, but some people need to be on the front line. Some good people need to break bad laws and accept the consequences. Mm-hmm. And that's where you, where you engage the law that legalizes slavery. 
You engage the law that legalizes segregation. How do you end segregation? Dr. King marched in Birmingham when he was under court order not to, to get Birmingham to, to deal with segregation. And then they filled the jails. And if you're totally nonviolent, the methodology is it becomes contagious. This is how nonviolence works, where suddenly thousands and thousands of kids and high school kids are getting arrested in Birmingham and the city shuts down. And then the whole world, not just America, is looking at segregation. They put South Africa to shame what Birmingham was doing. And it ended. It's incredible. So this is how nonviolence works. Jesus couldn't pull it off. But he still did it himself in in terms of the movement. They all abandoned him. And yet he went deep into nonviolence. They killed him. He rose and continued building the movement. Uh, of total nonviolence to bring down the empire. And this is where we are today. So I did this. I figured, well, I'm a priest. I should be doing this. What church people, especially the bishops, should be on the front lines, not poor Jane Fonda, you know, not these poor young people, Greta Thornburg. It's Christians and churches who should learn like Martin Luther King and Daniel Berrigan and Dorothy Day to be sitting in nonviolently shutting down the Pentagon, shutting down that nuclear plant in Kansas City, saying no more destruction of the environment, no more killing of that poor young guy, the jogger in Brunswick, Georgia, Ahmed Avery. We, we need to be leading the way, and some of us need to, to literally sit in so that we, um, our nonviolence is really engaging the culture of violence, even to the point that we accept suffering without a trace of desiring to retaliate. And we you know, they're not going to crucify us, but they will arrest you, I found. And they will put you in jail if you do these things. Mm. Jane and I and 140 people a couple of months ago were held in chains for a whole day. And mm. it got a lot of front page news around the world. She was really trying to get people to look at catastrophic climate change. So this is how the movement works. And I, if you don't understand it, go and study it. You, people could read my, uh, I published my journal from jail for my plowshares action. I was in jail for nine months with Philip Berrigan, 93 to 94. And that book is called Peace Behind Bars. And I really talk about civil disobedience there. But anyway, that's my thinking on it. And um, Jesus, Jesus did hundreds of acts of civil disobedience. And pretty much everything he did was illegal, actually. I wrote a whole book on that, too. Um, but he did this big action in the temple. And, well, they had to kill him then. Just as Martin Luther King, he was arrested 19 times, but he was calling upon a million people to come to Washington, D.C. in the Poor People's Campaign to shut down the D.C. government. And then they were going to march across the Potomac River and shut down the Pentagon to end the Vietnam War. And it might have happened. That's why the government killed him. Yeah. And he's a follower of Jesus. And Gandhi was killed, too. He literally did lead a nonviolent revolution and got he brought down the British Empire nonviolently. I think, you know, again, how do we follow Jesus? Well, we have our work cut out for us. And, it, and um, the Trump administration is leading the system of injustice to kill many people and support the very, very rich and hurt the poor all around the country and further the flames of racism and hatred and war. But it could lead to a nuclear war and further catastrophic climate change. So we all have to get involved. You know, we all have to get up and get moving. You don't have to do civil disobedience, I say, but you do have to be part of the grassroots movement for justice and peace. I think that's a requirement of discipleship to the nonviolent Jesus these days. I understand what you're saying. In peaceful, prayerful, contemplative nonviolence, we have to be part of the movement. How about the poor? Um, Tell us about your commitment to the poor. Tell us about... Uh, the reading the Gospels of Jesus, and, and in your mind, in your journey, in your search, um, where does that fit? You know, Dorothy Day had this unbelievable thirst for the poor, where she not only served them, she lived with them. And you know, they, right. the, the movie makes a big point of that. Um, is is that a, a portion of your journey? 
Yes, and I, Dorothy teaches me that. So she's trying to follow Jesus. Jesus is on the side of the poor. He's serving the poor. He becomes one with the poor. And that's the beginning of the journey. It's the, be- the first sentence of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor. The kingdom of God is theirs. But then it leads to hungry and thirsting for justice, making peace, being willing to be persecuted, and love your enemies. And what mm-hmm. the movie probably doesn't say that much, and what all of us, as the church is going to co-opt Dorothy and water her down, make her a plastic saint, make her safe, mm-hmm. is that Dorothy didn't stop there. Now, the way I look at it is this. So I've always tried to be on the side of the poor, to live very simply, to be as poor as I can be, and it really helps to go to jail, by the way, as a privileged, overeducated, white male cleric. You know, <laughs> uh, it makes perfect jail, sense to me uh, listening to that. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I could spend some time there. They're not going to, they don't treat me that well there. And um, the feds, they monitor me. Well, anyway, um, but I've lived in refugee camps in El Salvador and I've been in all the war zones of the world and always been trying to serve the poor wherever I'm at. But Dorothy is like this and she gets it from Gandhi too. Once you start doing charity work, this is what we're talking about. Oh, I am going down to help the poor. If you have your eyes open like Jesus does, you start asking, why are there so many poor people? This is not just these are people falling through the cracks. No, this is systemic crushing of our sisters and brothers. Millions of people in the United States are homeless. No, billions of people around the world, our sisters and brothers, are living in subhuman extreme poverty without adequate food, housing, health care employment and just dignity so dorothy says you then you keep doing your charity work but you start working for justice for the poor and the oppressed but once you start in that this is where she broke such ground and no one talks about you start going as she did in the 30s where's the money going Mm -hmm. i mean we could end homelessness and poverty we could end the UN has said all my entire life, the UN has said we could end world hunger in two weeks. We have the money. Trillion dollars could be spent to end extreme poverty and stuff. But where's the money going instead? To war and weapons and nuclear weapons. The U.S. Congress upgraded, is in the process of upgrading the U.S. nuclear weapons industry to the tune of $1 trillion. And all Democrats and all Republicans voted for that together. They're not as divided as you think. Mm. So she's making the journey from charity to justice to disarmament. You cannot have a just world and war at the same time. Mm. So you got to start disarming people because war not only makes people hungry and homeless, it kills them. So the works of mercy, you know, have to be also understood as, as uh the works of peace working to end war because war puts people in prison, makes people sick and it kills them and makes people poor. So she starts working for disarmament. And then you're going to I mean, imagine her. She was a communist. She, you're a communist. What are you going to do when the Russians come in under the cold war? She says, I'm going to offer them a cup of tea. You end up like Gandhi, a person of nonviolence, loving your enemies. She went the full gospel route and that's what I want us to do. And that's what I'm trying to do. Uh, I don't know if that answers the question, but uh, you're always on the side of the poor, and you're trying to become one with the poor, like Jesus. I think it does and, answer um, the question, but it leads to another yeah, and one. And then you're um, struggling for justice for the poor. So the rest of we're, we're trying to work to end poverty, actually, to abolish yeah. poverty, homelessness, hunger, and that means war and racism, and that means nuclear weapons and the destruction of the earth. And Pope Francis, in his encyclical, he would see, he's so far ahead of all of us in Laudate Si. He said, if you're in the side of the poor, you're on the side of the earth, because the earth is the poorest of all God's creatures. I mean, that's brilliant theology, and Dorothy would agree. We're destroying the earth now, just as we're crucifying the poor. Yes. Unpack the other end of that, the empire, the systemic nature of of the systems um you you've you've touched upon that with the pentagon and and with kind of even the church being co-opted by the republican agenda but unpack that a little bit more because i think it's more nuanced and subtle that than 
you know, many of us really realize. What are your thoughts on that? Well, it's hard to talk about it in just a minute or two, you know, and, and also what is it we're up against? And this is what Daniel Berrigan talked about every day of his life. And, and he was getting it from Merton and Dr. King and Dorothy trying to understand it. So you could say, so that's why, okay, it's the United States government. We're 4% of the world's population controlling 60% of the world's goods. Well, you're going to need a lot of weapons to steal everybody's goods. Like we went in and stole all the oil fields in Iraq. Well, so you got to kill everybody, make sure they don't rebel against us. That war is about money and power and security and resources and um, control and global domination. Well, the Democrats have been doing that too, and the Republicans do it, and Trump is totally insane. But it's not just Trump, it's the whole system, the culture of war. And then you go, well, all the nation states are on the side of the rich and you know, oppressing the poor. Very, very few are working for total justice and to have a, a total nonviolent culture. So as you know, I've been working, writing, my friends and I writing for Pope Francis, and we've got him now talking about the culture of violence and war versus the culture of, of nonviolence and peace, which we don't even know what it looks like. Now, Gandhi didn't talk about that, didn't use that language, and Dr. King didn't. But we're trying to go beyond them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stringfellow and the Berrigans said what we're up against, they use the language of St. Paul, principalities and powers. So mm-hmm. they're using biblical language to try to address the empire, the American empire, British empire, and then, you know, the white racist colonial powers and empires of recent centuries. But you could talk about the Roman empire, the Nazis. We're moving into total fascism here, I think, and global domination now and total surveillance of the whole human race and so forth. So what do we do? But I actually think it's deeper than that. Um, and this is where my arrogantism comes out. Dan said, yeah. he quoted the poet Auden. He said, what we're up against is death itself. And he, the poet Auden had his poem about death with a capital D. It's like we're addicted to violence and death as a people. Just like you see alcoholics or drug addicts who then die. And what mm-hmm. do you do? You have to do an intervention and you have to get them to become sober. And we're trying, we, that's why uh, the peace movement and Christianity is supposed, Jesus is trying to do an intervention in the human race and models nonviolence and trying to get us all to become totally nonviolent and work for a new culture of nonviolence, which he called the kingdom of God. Um, so, you know, he has nothing to do with the Roman Empire. And Dorothy was the only one who ever explained that incredible story. They bring him a coin and should we pay taxes? Well, give to God what is God's and give to Caesar what is Caesar. And so for 2,000 years, everybody paid their taxes. And Dorothy Day said, no, you missed the whole point. Once you, this is her quote, and I wonder if it was in the movie. It probably wasn't. But she didn't pay federal tax. That was in the movie, that she wouldn't pay federal tax. No, no, her quote. Once you give to God what is God's, there's nothing left for Caesar. Ah, uh, that Caesar was not doesn't get one thing. Right. She's way more revolutionary than we can, can begin to comprehend. Mm. Uh, we, we are we totally non-cooperate with the government that kills our sisters and brothers, and it's destroying mm. the earth now. And that's what we're up against. It's, it's, it's all of America, but it's the whole system around the world. Uh, it's demonic. It's the powers and systems of death. You know, and this is what we're up against. We're on the side of the God of life, trying to live life to the full and resist de- the forces of death and practice nonviolence and follow the nonviolent Jesus and be heralds of a whole new world that we can't even imagine, a new culture of peace and nonviolence where everyone gets to live in peace, which means no more war, no more weapons, no more nukes, no more Wall Street, no more Pentagon, and therefore no more death. And... Um, where these pandemics don't happen. Uh, we're, we're really working to make sure everybody's safe and sound everywhere. That's the vision. That's we we're, we're, we're entering the kingdom of God. And on that happy note, Mike, that's why I encourage everybody to keep, keep following the nonviolent Jesus and work to make Kansas city more nonviolent and um, make peace and justice and nonviolence at the heart of your contemplative practice. 
and uh, I think we're all being blessed the deeper we can go and the, the more steps publicly we can take with this vision. I know I've been on a long time, so thanks for having me, Mike. Well, thanks for all the time, John. We went on way longer than I kind of thought we would, but I appreciate the extra time, and uh, I promise our listeners will too. So we will uh, get this in final form. We'll get it uh, to your group and, and get it around. And uh, thanks so much for your time. Yeah, and thanks, thanks for, thanks for your you. words of wisdom. And uh, please let us know next time you got a chance to stop by Kansas City. We'd love to uh, co-sponsor uh, with anyone if you're uh, going to come again. Great, will do.